is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Just one day and then it is over. Until the next time and until all the lawsuits are settled, the midterm elections coming to a close as Election Day is tomorrow. President Biden and former President Trump are out doing some last-minute campaigning. But can either of them really impact the elections at this point, or are they out there simply to test their own popularity? Uh, Oh, and talking about Mr. Trump, well, there are reports that he could announce another presidential run as early as tonight. We'll go in-depth into how the Justice Department might react. The Republicans, they are predicted by many people to at least regain control of the House, What then happens in Washington, D.C. going forward? And a local city right here in L.A. County could soon let 16-year-olds vote in elections. What could possibly go wrong? Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has led to a whirlwind of changes for the social media giant. That's upset a lot of people. We can go in-depth into what the ultimate goal appears to be for Musk. Home ownership is slowly escaping the grasps of younger, less wealthy people, which could have some bad long-term economic impacts. The Powerball jackpot's at a national record and is approaching $2 billion. We're going to talk to a money expert for some advice in case we win. Yeah, fat chance. Of you that. and me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. We start. We start with uh, the elections. President Biden and Donald Trump. Tony Smith is a political science and law professor at UC Irvine. Tony, thanks for being with us. So, do people really give a hoot about whether President Biden or former President Trump shows up at a rally? Well, you know they they probably don't. But one of the things that happens is because they're the very big names the rally will get more local news coverage and it will remind people that they need to go vote. The logic of the two is a little bit different though. Trump is ginning up a reminder to all of the Republican voters that he's planning on running for president and don't forget who brought him to the dance the first time. And Biden is there trying to remind people what they didn't like about Donald Trump more than what they do like about Joe Biden. So there was some feeling uh, among some watchers who who say that President Biden is going out because he's also gauging how it feels to him to uh, campaign again, because we don't really know if he's going to run again in 2024. He said he's leaning that way, but he's going to say that before the midterms because you don't want to depress turnout. Uh, Donald Trump, on the other hand, a little bit different, uh, even if you just watch any of the rallies where he is sensibly there for somebody else. He spends 90 percent of the time talking about him himself. Uh, He might run and all the things he's going through and all his attacks on the people investigating him. So is that the situation? with uh, Donald Trump, if he's there more for himself, what do the people he campaigns for get out of that other than just coverage and maybe their names get mentioned? Well, some of them have gotten embarrassed uh, when he's talked about they've they've kissed his behind and that kind of stuff. Um, So for them, it's a mixed bag. They can't really say no to him because there's a significant portion of the Republican base that are, are ride or die for him and they don't really care about the other candidates or even about policy. Um, For Biden, uh, I think it's a little bit of a kabuki theater that uh, anybody thinks he's not going to run. I think the only reason he won't run is if he has some significant health challenge. But otherwise, uh, once uh, that is your address, it's very hard to imagine it not being your address. And uh, everybody runs uh, for re-election just about. I mean, it's not... uh, 
it, it, it's unreasonable to think he would really choose to stop being commander in chief, leader of the free world in his mind, especially somebody like Biden who spent his whole career, um, you know, in, in awe of the power of Washington and the power of the federal government. So uh, I think they're both running. Um, and I think we're going to have a rematch of last time because even if they both get other challenges in the primary, um, there isn't anybody that's going to be able to knock them off, I don't think. But let me ask you a little bit about uh, the local mayoral race in yeah. Los Angeles, because here we have one, as she likes to say, lifelong Democrat, Karen Bass, pitted against uh, Rick Caruso, who uh, is a newly minted Democrat. Uh, yes, President Biden, of course, has come out in support of Karen Bass. So has the entire pretty much uh, Democratic machine, if there is a machine in the yeah. state of California. Does that matter to voters at this point or, yeah. or, or does it work against perhaps Karen Bass? No, I think uh, I think that does help Karen Bass. Um, the you know, Rick Caruso has this challenging problem that. One of the things he's very upset about is homelessness. But if he had taken all of his personal wealth that he spent on trying to get the job of mayor and applied it to homelessness, he would have gone a pretty deep way into solving the problem that you, he claims he's running to solve. You, you, you mean you think $100 million would have helped? Uh, would help a great deal. I mean, it was, <laughs> it's sort of like Elon Musk's thing about do I build a house for every homeless vet in America or go to space for six minutes? Oh, obviously I go to space for six minutes. It's uh, so, uh, but I think that the way that Biden helps Karen Bass is he can smooth over a little bit of the identity politics friction that may have popped up because of the LA council drama, recent drama about racism among some of the representatives or statements that seemed racist. So uh, I think that he can come in and sort of remind the Democratic coalition um, how uh, how they win in L.A., and that is by sticking together. Um, and I don't I don't know if very many folks are, but, you, you know, will will Caruso be a Democrat even if Karen Bass wins? You know, it's hard to hard to know. Well, what, he, uh, he told us that he uh, would. He told us he's in the Democratic Party and that he would continue uh, to uh, support Democrats, that he wanted Democrats to win uh, Congress. So uh, yeah. I guess we'll see. We'll see after the election. Again, how much of, you know, 100 million for himself, how, how much went into John Fetterman's race or Mark Kelly's race or uh, Katie Porter's race? Uh, you know, let's uh, we, we could probably track that out and find out it's not a lot. All right. Well, thank you so much. That is uh, Tony Smith, a political science and law professor at UC Irvine. By the way, just a reminder, as tomorrow is the election, uh, we are your home for election coverage. Uh, L.A. Election Night, Election Night L.A., tomorrow, beginning at 6 p.m., coverage right here on KNX. Uh, Charles over there will be there. And uh, Mike Simpson, too, with expert analysis as results begin to trickle in. Right now, uh, most projections for the elections have the Republicans taking control of the House, the Senate, uh, too close to call. But if the Republicans do take over the House, what happens? What's among their priorities? And can President Biden navigate a divided or Republican-controlled Congress? Henry Olson is a Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Henry, thanks for being with us. So if the polls are right and if the uh, Republicans take over the House, and that would mean Kevin McCarthy in all likelihood would become the next Speaker of the House, replacing Nancy Pelosi, what would the next two years of the Biden administration look like? 
Well, it would be gridlock, and it would be very difficult for anything to get through. Uh, certainly, you'd have to have annual or uh, biennial uh, budget deals. Uh, that's something you can't shut down the government, so they have to talk about that. Anything legislative, though, is going to be very difficult. I think Republicans will try and get a big start by pushing their priorities at least out of the House in the first month. And then we'll see how President Biden reacts when he gives his State of the Union address. The uh, January 6th committee in the House already had an end date uh, baked in. But what's going to happen to the people who are on that committee, do you think? I know there were some on the uh, further right, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who want the committee members investigated. Will we see anything like that or will Kevin McCarthy try to uh, pilot a more conservative, no pun intended, course? Yeah, I would use the word cautious, given MTG's out there conservatism. You know, I, I do not think that you're going to see any sort of Republican witch hunt of the members of the January 6th committee. I think they will shut the panel down. I think uh, that panel understands that they're going to get their report out before the election day. And then we'll simply move on. The uh, Republicans might want to have their own investigation into the handling of the Capitol Police on that day. Um, or McCarthy may just want to let it slide under the rug. Uh, that decision, I think, uh, remains to be made. But uh, definitely the panel is shut down. Definitely we're not going to have a witch hunt about the panel members. So let's say we have this uh, gridlock, which seems very logical uh, for the next two years, provided, again, that the Republicans take control of the House. Uh, does that actually have the potential to backfire for Republican and perhaps more importantly, uh, independent voters in 2024, because if they see nothing happening, uh, I mean, after all, uh, even with uh, President Biden uh, in the White House and the Senate, you know, ostensibly in Democratic control, but only with the by virtue of the fact of uh, Kamala Harris being able to break a tie, he still was able to accomplish a lot in terms of legislative victories, albeit many with compromises, but victories nonetheless. If nothing happens for two years, does that actually drive Republican and independent voters in 2024 to a Republican ticket? It depends on how it plays out and who they blame and uh, how it's played. You know, that typically parties have overplayed their midterm mandates, uh, that they have tended to go too far rather than not far enough. Um, and that will has tended to create a backlash. So if Republicans say, hey, we've got a 20-seat majority in the House and maybe a two-seat majority in the Senate, let's throw everything on our wish list at the president, that will almost certainly backfire. On the other hand, if they promote a series of things that are poll-tested and have wide cross-party support, such as you know dealing with the immigration crisis, then I think that puts President Biden and the Democrats on the back foot. So much of this is going to depend on exactly the positions each side takes in this. And then it becomes something that merges into the 2024 campaign, much as the 95 debates between Gingrich and President Clinton merged into the Dole versus Clinton battle once the presidential year got underway. Now, if the Republicans do take uh, control of the House, there's a portion of the Republican Party now controlled by Mr. Trump who are going to say, you know, you got there because of us and they're going to demand, you know, things for them. How much of that do you think we'll see when you talk about, you know, parties sometimes overstate their midterm, uh, their midterm victories and do too much? I think, you know, this is the thing that will test Kevin McCarthy's 
speakership. That on the one hand, you will have Trumpian members. On the other hand, you'll have hardcore conservatives who may be aligned with Trump but have different incentives. On the other hand, you will have somewhere between 10 and 35 new members from swing districts who will have very different considerations. A leader who is skilled finds a way to forge unity out of that, and a leader that is unskilled is one that is unable to breach those divisions. This will test Speaker McCarthy, and I can't predict how it's going to turn out. So we've been talking mostly about a what appears to be an inevitable Republican takeover of the House. But if they also managed to take over the Senate, in which case Republicans would control both houses of Congress, uh, still gridlock because, what, Biden would veto everything he doesn't like? That's exactly right. And that what you'll have is Biden's legislative agenda will be DOA. Uh, then the question is, what will Republicans try and send to his desk? What will they try and force Senate Democrats to filibuster? And that can go two ways. They can send too much or too radical stuff, and that will backfire against them, even if it gives them a short-term sugar hop of satisfying their base. Um, but if they send things that the middle of America, the sort of person who will have voted for Biden in 2020 and Republicans in 2022 say, hey, that's reasonable, then it puts the Democrats on the back foot, and they'll they'll have to decide whether they want to be forced to negotiate or not. One thing Senate Democrats will have to know is that there will be nine members of their caucus who represent states that either were extremely close or that Donald Trump won or that a Republican will win this time up on the ballot in 2024. So there'll be a lot of internal pressure to say, Let's fight the really crazy stuff, but let's try and have some victories, too, because we have to face Republican-leaning voters and convince them why they should change their minds from 2022 and send us back. All right. Thank you. Uh, I like that sugar rush high uh, after the midterm elections. Uh, That's Henry Olson, Washington Post columnist and senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Coming up, former President Trump could become a presidential candidate again tonight. We'll look into what the Justice Department might have planned. And if you won the nearly $2 billion Powerball jackpot, what would you do with all that money? And what should you do with all that money? We are going to try to find out. Don't tell me what to do. (laughs) I'm planning on winning. Uh, Right now, though, how young is too young to vote? Voters in Culver City are going to decide that tomorrow. Measure VY would allow 16- and 17-year-olds to vote in the city and school board elections. Now, opponents say 16-year-olds are too young to understand the issues and and make reasonable choices. So what's the argument for it? With us now is Culver City Mayor Daniel Lee. And I understand you were uh, for this idea. What's the benefit? So the benefit overall of allowing 16-year-olds to vote is that the younger that people get involved with the electoral system and our democracy, the more frequently they vote and the higher probability that they become lifelong voters. When this issue first came before us, it was incredibly inspiring. One, because it was completely organized by young people, but it was organized by young people who were Democrats and who were Republicans and who were independents. If young people, you know, have to deal with things like the climate crisis and the fact that we're not moving fast enough on addressing policy around the climate crisis, if they have to be in fear and do lone shooter drills, 
they should be able to vote. Well, you know, on the other hand, we've had innumerable on this show, uh, innumerable child psychologists say that someone who's 16, even somebody who's frankly 17 or 18, is not yet fully psychologically developed to make many complex decisions. Uh, and voting often involves, as you know, making very complex decisions and having a certain amount of real-world experience on which to base your decisions upon. Are you that confident that somebody who is 16 has the maturity level and the life experience level at the ripe age of 16 to make decisions that might end up impacting your life? I'm not confident that a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old has the uh, psychological development and the ability to make complex decisions. I think we've seen adults make a lot of dumb decisions. Well, uh, but, and- but, dumb, but making dumb decisions and having the, the, the biological ability to make if you certain actually, decisions. If you actually listen to the psychologist, um, when it comes to decisions that are around policy, there, there are two di- there are two or three different distinctions. Young people are developed enough to make complex decisions and to make arguments around issues of civics and issues of state. If they weren't, they would not be able to write essays. They would not be able to do complex things like drive a car, which you know seems simple once you've learned, but when you're not uh, used to driving a car, it is not simple. So I would be very comfortable with these young people having the opportunity to vote. And I really want to emphasize that it's the opportunity to vote. This doesn't mean that it's prescriptive that all young people have to vote. The ones that are motivated, the ones that learn the most, who are passionate about issues in particular, those will be the ones that vote. People develop cognitively at different rates. And if we're being serious, I'm professionally a social worker. My master's and doctorate are in social work. People don't really mature and get out of puberty until they're 25 to 30. So should we raise the voting age to 30? Well, maybe. I I mean, (laughs) you just opened up a can (laughs) of worms. I mean, maybe maybe that is the point, because one could argue that we haven't made many very good decisions as a country and as as uh, municipalities over the past few years perhaps maybe that that should be the case but back well, to your point well, but, but back to your point it, back to your point about uh, you know uh, kids and and dry, you know 16 year olds also and the police will tell you this have a much higher accident rate driving cars so yes they do uh, have to you know they drive and they make complex decisions about when to accelerate onto the 405 if that's even possible but they also have a higher accident rate and insurance companies will vouch for that one so that kind of goes counter to your point that they have a maturity and experience level enough to vote well People who drive have accidents, period. Driving is the most dangerous form of transportation. So you can't say because teenagers have a few more accidents, we shouldn't let them vote. Um, I think the argument for not letting them vote has really not been proven. Uh, there, as I said, there are people at different levels of mental uh, development and acuity who are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, who are still allowed to vote. How do we arbitrarily define that line? Do people have so, to take an IQ test? So should somebody who's 16 qualify to run for president? I think uh, people who are 16 should be able to run for office. I think if you're able to vote, you should be able to run for office. So should somebody who's 16 be able to run for president? 
Uh, yes, I answered it in the affirmative the first time. So somebody, so in your view, a 16-year-old should be able to run for president of the United States? Yes. Okay. And I think there's a there's a problem here with you and the anti-argument equating having someone have the ability to do something with them that they're the the act of doing something really changing the whole equation. If 16 year olds are available to vote, all 16 year olds aren't going to vote. It's not going to change that much. It's just an ideological talking point. Well, that's I mean, that's true for everybody. Uh, 16 year old is able to run for president. Are 70 year olds going to vote for a 16 year old? It does that mean we're going to have a 16 year old president? No, it doesn't. Well, I want to bring it back to to I want to bring it back to the city because we're talking right now about 16 year olds voting in a city and school board elections. So let's say somehow, just in some way, if a measure came up before the city that said 16 year olds should have the right to drink and 16 year old voters push that through. Will would you then regret that decision? Uh, no, I wouldn't, because, uh, as I said, having the right to vote does not mean that 16 year olds will vote in droves, even if something like. Uh, drinking came up. If you look at recent statistics, millennials and Generation Z actually consume much less alcohol, much less uh, recreational drugs than past. So the idea that they would somehow be very much in favor of passing a measure uh, (laughs) to legalize alcohol for 16-year-olds just because they're 16 is not true. All right. Well, uh, we're going to leave it there because we're kind of up against a break here. But Measure VY is uh, up before the uh, Culver City. That's the mayor of Culver City, uh, Daniel Lee, who was for the idea of uh, letting 16-year-olds vote. Or run for president. Or run for president. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Changes to Twitter have been fast and furious since Elon Musk took it over. But are these changes just creating more chaos? First, Musk lays off thousands of workers, but now there are reports that dozens are being asked to come back because they were apparently let go by mistake. Because it actually requires people to run a company. Exactly. Yes. As for for content control, uh, Musk is now suspending accounts that impersonate others without a parody disclaimer. And he seems to be going back on a previous view that Twitter shouldn't take political sides by sending out a tweet today saying that people should vote for Republicans. With us is Mark Fidelman, a social media and e-commerce expert and founder of Smart Blocks, which helps people navigate the crypto world. Mark, thanks for being with us. So, uh, gee, mm-hmm. Musk doesn't seem to know what he's doing at Twitter, or or does he? Well, you know, anytime you lay off thousands of people, there's going to be some uh, mistakes. So uh, I'm actually a, a believer that if you've got the wrong people in the bus, you gotta you got to get them off. And if he missed a few people that should stay on the bus, then he went back and grabbed a half dozen or so. So uh, I, I think it, from that point of view, I, I think he's uh, I think he's doing the right thing and he's probably doing the best he can. I mean, the guy's managing, what, four companies now? Well, we talk about uh, the chaos that we saw this morning. You know, he was uh, had warned that he was going to start banning permanently anybody impersonating people uh, because a lot of people began to get that blue check mark and change their handles to Elon Musk. Uh, apparently rubbed him the wrong way. And then he said, we're going to we're going to ban you if you don't put a parody disclaimer on the account. But I did see some examples today of people who had very clearly marked their accounts as parodies and those had been suspended 
as well. And then I found out there's some, one could call it obscure rule, uh, buried deep in the rule somewhere, that the word parody has to be in the handle and in the bio somewhere, and they're using that as the excuse. Doesn't, doesn't that seem like chaos to you? It seems like they're trying to do too much too fast. And, um, you know, with the parody thing, he just makes these announcements, doesn't think them through. And then when it's implemented, it seems like it's chaotic. So I, I would definitely agree with you there. I mean, is it that that, as we know from the history uh, in this, that, you know, he made the offer, then he was trying to get out of the offer and he ended up going through with the offer because he had a court date and he would have been forced to buy them anyway uh, because the court was was now going to rule against him. So is it just that he's kind of stuck with this and he doesn't really know what to do with it? I think it's a learning uh, process for him. I I think he bought it for the right reasons. You know, he wants to have a platform that's non-political where you can post your opinions without fear of reprisal getting banned from, from the platform. But you know, he hasn't managed a tech company, a real tech company in a while. I think the last was probably PayPal. So he's got some uh, growing pains, I'm sure, that he's going to go through now and in the future. But his his whole notion, as you just more mentioned about it being non-political, how does that jibe with the tweet he sent out in April saying to the, what you just said, that it should be uh, not political? And then he turns around and he sends out a tweet this morning saying that it's much better having, uh, you know, sort of a divided government with a Democrat in the White House so people tomorrow should vote Republican. That sounds kind of political to me. Yeah, I, I, I see the hypocrisy, uh, I, although I think he's speaking as an independent person that's saying, hey, vote Republican, not that the Twitter platform is going to choose sides on its own. You know, they're going to allow both sides to say what they want, and he just exercises individual right to express his views on on who you should vote for. Uh, also, the way he's uh, kind of treated some of the advertisers, uh, if he wants to turn Twitter into a profitable business, he kind of not doing that good of a job at it because uh, he sent a tweet recently. I think we remember he said that advertisers were pulling out of the platform and that showed that they did not love America and they didn't love freedom. Uh, but freedom also includes the right of a business to say, I don't want to advertise on that platform or on that radio station or on that TV station. That's also freedom of speech and it's freedom for people to say, well, I don't want to be part of Twitter anymore. Isn't it? It is. I mean, everyone has a right to free speech. I, I think his comment is more about, okay, now wait a second. Um, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. You know, he feels a lot of these corporations are too woke uh, to use an abused word and that they're just making these decisions based on uh, some politically correct factor and not on a, a strictly business reason. Of course, these corporations have the right to do what they want to do. Absolutely. And so does Elon Musk in, in his response. And to go back a little bit to the now $8, it was down from what initially was thought to be a $20, but now it's an $8 uh, a month fee if you want to get one of those much-coveted uh, blue check marks. Uh, I don't know. I mean, having looked at Twitter for the past few days, there seems to be an awful lot of people who just are not, or at least they say, they're not going, going to go along with that. They think it's sort of outrageous and kind of goes counter to the whole purpose of having some verification process if you can simply buy your way in. Well, I mean, shouldn't I, I mean, I'm a believer that everyone should be verified. So, you know, who, if you're talking to a real person or not, I mean, how many scams are there on Twitter? No, I agree. So why? But why then charge people eight bucks? Well, I think he's got to make up for the $40 billion he just spent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that gets nowhere near the $40 billion, though. No, I, think I know. Somebody crushed the numbers and like, you're still a ways off there, dude. 
<laughs> it's first step, maybe. <laughs> I'm sure there's going to be other charges that are coming. Do you have a blue check mark? I, I did originally uh, because I was a, I wrote for Forbes for a while, but uh, I guess I got to start paying for it now. But I was yeah. going to say, are you going to cough up eight dollars? What is that? Two hundred and forty a mean, year? Is that what it is? I'm in California, as you guys are. It's a gallon of gas, so. Uh, it doesn't seem like a lot to me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Mark uh, Fidelman, a social media e-commerce expert, founder of Smart Blocks that helps people navigate the crypto world. You know, I was doing a little math before when we were talking about uh, Twitter. Math, uh, math about, is hard. Math is hard. And, and uh, I was trying to calculate how much it would be now under uh, Elon Musk's plan to mm -hmm. uh, charge people for that coveted blue check mark. And I mentioned 240 a year, but that actually was at the old price of 20 bucks a month. Now that he's knocked that right. down to $8, that comes up to $96 yeah. a year. So it's like a bargain at any price. Well, that sounds more affordable. <laughs> yeah, right. Count me in. But it's still $96 more yeah. than zero. That's true. Yeah. Uh, multiple reports say it's possible that former President Trump, we all remember him, could announce his 2024 presidential run as soon as tonight. The president is going to be at a rally in Ohio to help uh, the Republican Senate candidate there, J.D. Vance. Now, if uh, Mr. Trump does decide to announce he's running for president, what happens to all the Justice Department investigations? They won't just disappear. Rachel Fize is a defense attorney, legal analyst and managing partner at uh, Zweibach Fize and Zaldueno. Uh, Zaldueno, uh, I, you know, I just butchered that pronunciation and I apologize for that. I hope you don't hate me for it. But thank you for joining us uh, today. So uh, what will the Justice Department do? Let's say he makes that announcement at the rally tonight. And uh, what will the Justice Department announce tomorrow? <laughs> That's a great question. It's hard to say what they will announce tomorrow. But they are certainly not going to end the investigations, but they're all going to probably sit around scratching their heads for a moment to determine whether they need a special counsel. And a special counsel would be somebody that would look a bit more independent than the current prosecutors leading the investigation, uh, but would still be under the control, still appointed by Merrick Garland, the U.S. you know, attorney general. So... I think if this happens, it is another way that Donald Trump could politicize this investigation. Well, I was going to say, I, I mean, a lot of people think that, that Mr. Trump's game plan from day one has been to run the clock because he's very good at doing that. And his his legal team has proven over the years to be very good at, at doing that. So does he succeed then because he announces whether it's tonight or tomorrow or the next day, uh, it, it seems inevitable that he is going to. So once he is an actual declared candidate and, and would become the presumptive uh, Republican Party candidate, uh, although I suppose it's possible somebody could challenge him and win, but it seems doubtful. Uh, realistically, how could the Justice Department, with or without a special counsel, succeed in, if it decides an indictment is merited, um, how could it do that without facing the claim that they are acting in a political way? It seems almost impossible. It's impossible for them to do that without it without the claim that they are acting in a political way. And frankly, whether he's the candidate or not, that's going to be the claim. It's just he's going to have more support for it if he is the candidate or is a candidate running. 
However, the Justice Department has held steady that they are going to treat all citizens the same way and that they will proceed as they will proceed. So if they think there is an indictment warranted, they will continue to indict. Now, that's easier said than done, of course. But I believe that if they believe there is a claim warranted and it makes sense in their discretion to continue going forward, they will go forward. But it will be a very messy election cycle. I, it seems like such a long time ago, but I remember in 2016, in the run-up to that election, there was the possibility, we were told, that Hillary Clinton might face indictment before the election, because it's going back to the email scandal. Uh, we didn't hear much about it then. Uh, but uh, there was that possibility. But it didn't happen. But, you know, people talked about it. That was something we were kind of prepared for. It might happen this time if we see an indictment against Donald Trump. Now, if he runs out the clock, as Charles says, as he is uh, wont to do, uh, if he is under indictment, he gets indicted and then is still running for president. What does that do to his presidential campaign? And could we face the prospect of a person winning the presidential election who was under indictment? It seems like such a wild prospect that a person under indictment and under such serious investigations could be the candidate, could win a presidential election. But again, this is Donald Trump, and at this point, anything's possible. So yes, if he runs out the clock and he were to win, if he were not to be convicted in the time period before he could win the election, then yeah, he's done. He, you know, he gets in, he ends the, he ends the investigation and this is over. It seems like that's a pretty extreme scenario as I think this investigation has proceeded. uh, There's more than we know as to what investigation is happening right now. And they know whether or not they have the evidence to indict. My guess is right now. So they might just have to be acting a bit faster if that is the plan. So, I mean, here's a really wild scenario, but I suppose it's possible. And actually, it's happened in Israel with Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been indicted in Israel and yet is is now going to be prime minister yet again. I mean, is it possible that that you can have a, a major party candidate, in this case, Trump, indicted, whether by the feds or, of course, he has cases pending uh, criminal cases both in New York City and in the state of Georgia, uh, get convicted, still win the presidency, and then because of the Constitution, he would have to be impeached to be removed. So, so then what happens? I don't like your scenario. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> but it's but it's but theoretically possible. It could happen. It? it could happen. Exactly. That that is the wildest scenario of, of which we would, you know, think of the democracy and what a mess it would be should that be happening. But again, Donald Trump has tried to light fires everywhere he's gone, and he is perhaps just about to light another one tonight or tomorrow. Right, Rachel, if that really wild scenario happens, you, Rob, and I will get together, write the screenplay on yes. it, and sell it to our studio. And we'll get laughs out exactly. of the building because it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Rachel Vizet, defense attorney and legal analyst. Thank you so much for joining us. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. 
I'm Charles Feldman. All the numbers show buying a home for the first time is getting harder and harder for people. Rising home prices and now mortgage rates are squeezing would-be first-time buyers out of the market. Yeah, a new profile from the National Association of Realtors has just found American home buyers are older, whiter, and wealthier than at any time in recent memory. First-time buyers now account for the smallest share of the market in 41 years. Austin Clemens is Director of Economic Measurement Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Austin, thanks for being with us. So basically, if you're on the younger side and you need uh, you know, to have a mortgage in order to afford a home, uh, you're not probably going to get it because the older white guy with a pocket full of cash is going to swoop down and buy the house, right? Yeah, you're getting pushed out of the market. And uh, a lot of this has to do with things that we've seen just over the course of the pandemic where, uh, you know, there was a huge increase in a huge surge in housing demand last year. Uh, and a, a lot of people decided that, you know, now, now was the time to get a, a larger place because they were working from home or, or because they were moving to a new area because they were working from home. Uh, and then, of course, now we have interest rates going up uh, as the Federal Reserve tries to combat inflation, and, and that's also going to put pressure on new home buyers. So that's tending to push out people with lower income, which means younger people, um, communities of color, and, and so forth. And in a lot of ways, uh, being a first-time buyer, getting into the uh, buying of a home market uh, helps you get into the game, so to speak. If uh, fewer people are able to get into the game, what are going to be the long-term economic impacts of that? Yeah, I mean, as you say, like it's just incredibly important for, especially for middle-class households. Uh, housing is often the largest source of wealth for those households, larger than their 401ks most of the time. And so uh, if if these households can't get into the market, uh, it means that that's, you know, one less asset for them that is a great asset because it's an asset that you uh, essentially invest in, you know, you're saving every time you pay your mortgage because you're gaining more equity in your home. And so as people are pushed out of that market, it means they're saving less and they're they're building less wealth. And it's uh, going to tend to reinforce existing wealth divides in the in the economy. Is this sort of trend likely to be reversible in a short amount of time? Or are we talking about a generational issue and it's going to be many, many years, maybe decades before things sort of even out? You know, I'd love to be optimistic, but the truth is, is that this is already a pretty long term trend. I mean, I pointed to some some short term factors from the pandemic that have made this worse. But uh, we've actually seen that housing affordability relative to median incomes has been uh, decreasing since sometime in like the mid 80s or, or maybe early 90s. And so, you know, it's been a long term trend, I think, in, in part because incomes have grown at the top much, much faster than they've grown in the middle, at part because of serious disruptions. We've had like the Great Recession that threw a lot of people into foreclosure. Um, and so, you know, it, there's, I think, a short-term trend, which is, is making this much more difficult, but there's also a long-term trend. And, and honestly, I'm not hopeful that it can be reversed in the near term. So is what's happening in the housing market, is this a symptom of a bigger societal problem that we're seeing the rich get richer, the poor get poor, and the middle class disappears? Or is it the other way around? I, I would have to say it is a little bit a symptom of that, you know, um, 
we're seeing houses get just more expensive generally for for demand reasons and other reasons. But uh, as that happens, it, it just happens that only people with very high incomes are really in the market. And if you look at the data, uh, I did an analysis in 2020 using 2019 data from the Federal Reserve. And what we found was that uh, regardless of what category of person you look at almost, you can look at uh, sort of the bottom 90% of people, you can look at white, black, Hispanic, all of those categories, homeownership is declining. The only category where we see homeownership going up is the richest 10% of people by income. Uh, so this has been happening for, for a little while and, and it looks like it is endemic to uh, the sort of rising inequality we see in, in our economy generally. Yeah, so where does this all end? Because, you know, like after World War II, lots of people were able to buy homes because they were relatively cheap and, and people benefited from uh, all kinds of deals that were afforded to veterans. Uh, if this trend, as it seems likely, is going to continue, uh, it's not sustainable as a society, is it? Because uh, if if people are displaced from uh, homes or they can't buy the homes to begin with because they're too expensive, and then the rents, of course, go up if they go to a rental because the, now there are too many people chasing too few apartment units. So what happens? We have Do we become a nation of homeless people? Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're exactly right that that it's concerning because you know a, apart from the wealth generating aspects of it, right? Uh, the the other thing about homeownership that has been so important to prior generations is that by the time they get towards retirement age, uh, they have they're no longer paying high housing costs because they've maybe paid off their home. Um, you know, they can maybe take equity out of that home. Um, they can sell that home. And so, you know, it gives them a lot of options in older age. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to make too many predictions, but I, I definitely think it's concerning that we're going to have a group of people who get to retirement age and they don't have this incredibly important asset to fall back on that that has really underpinned, uh, I think, you know, the ability of middle class families to to have healthy retirements for a very long time in the U.S. Well, we're all depressed now. Thank you so much, uh, Austin Clemens, uh, Director of Economic Measurement Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Well, lottery fever sweeping the country, and uh, for good reason, I suppose, the Powerball jackpot expected to reach about $2 billion before tonight's drawing. It will be the largest lottery jackpot in the entire history of the United States since it was formed. Charles, if you won that money, what would you do? First thing. If I won uh, $2 billion? Yeah. Um, you know, that's a good question. I, 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 I want to give you a really serious answer, but no. I, I, I don't know what I would do with $2 no billion. Idea. Because it's more money than, than people like you and me could imagine in our lifetimes. Yeah. We would never make that much money if, if we lived to be a 1000 I know one thing I would do automatically is I would upgrade from the uh, grande latte mm -hmm. uh, to the larger <laughs> size, probably. <laughs> I was just about to say, from now on, at the drive-thru, I'm supersizing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what would you do if you won all that money? Let's get a bit of a different uh, perspective, though. Uh, I would hire a vocal coach for one thing. Uh, what if you're a financial advisor or an expert on money and the winner walks into your office with their ticket and says, help me figure out what to do? What do you say? 
Here to answer that question, Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief at TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. So there's your first question, and thank you for joining us. Let's say <laughs> that uh, someone like me, and I'm not that smart with money, if I won this huge <laughs> jackpot, I was a sole winner, and I've got $2 billion or a billion if I take the lump sum, What what's the first thing you would tell me to do? This is such a good question because I have actually also, I never play lotto, but I actually also bought a ticket. So I was actually thinking what I would do if I won $2 billion. So if my job doesn't see me tomorrow, they probably know that I've won uh, because I'm never showing up to work again. Um, but in all seriousness, one of the first things you're going to do is you need to figure out if you're in a state that can actually claim the prize money anonymously. If you can... I would always recommend claiming the prize money anonymously. You don't need friends, relatives, your fourth grade teacher trying to come to you with their hands out asking for some of that cash. Uh, so first figure out what the laws are governing that lotto ticket. If you're in a jurisdiction where you have up to a year, if you only have three months to claim it, if you can claim it anonymously through an LLC, if you could just claim it anonymously outright, those are some of the things that you're going to want to figure out. The second thing you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get a tax advisor and you're going to want to get a financial advisor because now that you've won the money, the thing is you don't want to lose the money, right? right. Two billion is a lot of money. You think that it's impossible. It's an impossible amount of cash to burn through. But if the history of lotto winners tells us anything is people get very creative and they find a lot of ways to essentially spend through all of their winnings so that they even yes. have to possibly file for bankruptcy. Right. And a lot, and you're right. A lot of people who win uh, lottery tickets and, and uh, we've seen interviews with them over the years, they'll come back years later and they'll say, yeah, it was terrible because my relatives were hitting me for money and I made all these bad decisions and invested in things that, that, that I lost money on and, and they were in no better shape at the end of the process than they were in the beginning. But right. you met, but you mentioned, you know, uh, to hire a financial advisor. Well, that's not so easy, is it? I mean, people who are very wealthy and have always been very wealthy, they know how to go about finding the right advisors because it's mm. kind of like part of their DNA. If if you have all your life been, you know, the average American worker, how do you know who is the right advisor to tell you what to do with your, you know, $2 billion winning? <laughs> That's a really good question. And honestly, I get that a lot, whether you're a lotto winner or you're just a regular person that maybe is starting to do well in life. So the thing is this, there actually is a National Association of Financial Advisors, right? And you can start to look for people and you can actually check their website out on that National Association and see who the financial advisors are in your state. Uh, I would say two things. You're going to want someone first and foremost who actually holds a fiduciary interest. That means they always have to act in your best financial interest legally. That is a requirement. So you want someone with that fiduciary interest because it means that they have to do things that are good for you and your wallet. The second thing that you're going to want to look at, depending on who you get, is the kind of certifications that might be required. If you're going to get an accountant, for example, you want someone who is CPA certified, right? You want someone who is a certified accountant. The same is going to be true with financial advisors. There are certifications that people can get and do hold. They're very difficult tests that you have to take. Um, and so you could also check to make sure that someone is certified. So that is something, something that you want to definitely look at. But then the third thing is, honestly, it's like getting a partner, right? Whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a therapist, you want to essentially check to make sure that you actually like them. Just because you find a financial advisor or a wealth manager doesn't mean that you have to go with them right away. 
have those, a meeting. So, so those are the smart things to do. What's the dumbest mm-hmm. thing you could do? Here we go. <laughs> well, I would say the number one dumbest thing to do would be go on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and say, hey, guys, I won uh, the <laughs> yeah, lotto. That, that would be pretty uh, stupid. Yeah. The, the second stupid, <laughs> the second probably worst thing that you could do after that would be to start paying money for things before you make a plan. You have to, no matter how much money you have or how little money you have, you have to make a plan for your money or your money will make a plan for itself. And it's never a good thing to go in the latter route uh, because that's how you end up spending all of it on clothes or shoes or vacations or cars or paying other people's debt. And that's how you end up burning through $1.9 billion. So you need to make a plan for that cash. If you do decide to help friends and family, there's nothing wrong with that, especially when you've got $2 billion of it, right? But you want to make sure, hey, I'm only going to set aside $10 million or $5 million or 100000 whatever the amount is, to go to charity or church or my friends or my family. That's the money I'm going to set aside. This is the amount of money I'm going to set aside to pay off my personal debts. This is the amount that I'm going to buy real estate with, for example. This is the amount I'm going to pay uh, to use for investing. This is the amount I'm going to use for my future, maybe for my children and paying off their college education. You need to make a plan for that cash. And with a large sum like that, I would highly, highly advise anyone to start getting some experts involved to really make sure that they can handle it in the best way possible so that they don't just have $2 billion for their lifetime, but for their children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren uh, to benefit from as well. Okay, quick question uh, before we go. Uh, what's better, take the uh, annual payments or the lump sum? Lump sum. I lump would always sum. do a lump, lump sum. Lump sum. Now, I will say it is somewhat of a personal decision in how you spend money, but I personally would always do the lump sum. Pay the tax up front so you don't have long-term tax uh, implications, and you can go and invest that in the market right away and really start taking advantage of those gains. Kristen, you said you're playing the lottery uh, today. So are you all planned out? Do you know what you're going to do if you win? Oh, I, I absolutely do. I made a plan for it, even though even before. Well, so like I said, if you guys never hear from me again, because I, I, you'll, I'll never confirm nor deny it. But if you but, never hear from me, you know what happens. So, so if we call if we call your number in the future and there's no response, we know that you're the one. You're yeah, the, the one who won. The number has been disconnected and I'm off the grid. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you so much. Krista Myers, editor and uh, chief at TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. You, you're playing uh, this this game, aren't you, Charles? Well, well I like her, her notion that you should put aside some for your family if you win. So I'm figuring a dollar each. Yes. <laughs> you know, That's and then, about all they deserve. Yeah, a buck no, each. And, or, or what you do is you, you, you give them like you know $1,000 and say, you know what? Go out, buy your own lottery <laughs> tickets. Good luck. It's <laughs> a thousand lottery tickets. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. That's been KNX in depth for today. We'll do it again tomorrow election night coverage and election night coverage six uh, o'clock right here and it's going to be you yeah and, and this mr. guy mike and this guy mike simpson he i think he's going places i think so he's going to be huge one day yeah. so stick around for that